Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look look so sad when you're not ill? Can this be nothing but sadness of the heart? I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, Let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have the letters to the governors of the trans-Euphorites, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he can give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphorites and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanblat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except the one I was riding on. By night, I went up through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by the fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had not said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Jeshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Why are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heavens will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no shame in Jerusalem or claim or any historic right to it. And I'm going to pray for Steve. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that we have the opportunity to praise you and to worship you and to hear your word. I pray, God, that you bless Steve as he preaches to us today, and I also bless that you 
I ask that you open our hearts so that we can receive your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mimi. Decision-making and uncertain times. We're in a uh, series, uh, we just started it, called Rebuild and Renew. In the 5th century, Nehemiah was used by God to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem and to renew the people's hearts. If you remember from last week, as the people returned from exile in Babylon, uh, they were small. Their local enemies made life really hard. The rebuilt temple did not reflect its former glory. And many Jews were still scattered in the empire. They hadn't come back to Jerusalem. They were disconnected. The people were vulnerable. They lacked confidence and corporate identity. They lacked conviction and courage. Their corporate worship had been compromised. And last week we saw that Nehemiah, who was one of the chief security guards to the most powerful man in the world, King Artaxerxes, learned about the plight of God's city, the disrepair of the city walls, and the disgrace of God's people. And God moved Nehemiah's heart. In other words, Nehemiah caught God's heart for God's city. And it moved him. And so for our day, as we think about the book of Nehemiah and what it means for us to rebuild community life as a church and corporate worship after we've been scattered, but also to ensure that our hearts are being renewed as we return, there's some good lessons for us, particularly about what it means to catch God's heart for God's city. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus famously said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. Who is he speaking to? Twelve disciples. They weren't the cream of the crop. They deserted him, they bickered, they betrayed him. All kinds of things, as you read the stories, uh, they lacked faith. They got confused very quickly. They were like the community in Nehemiah's day. Small, vulnerable, fragile. And yet Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and says, you are the city of God. So he says, let your light shine. And that was an Old Testament prophecy that the nations would come in as Israel would shine a light through your words and your deeds. Let people know what God's city of eternal joy is like by how you live and how you speak. So God wants Christ City Church to be a city within a city. The city of God within the city of Dublin for the good of the gospel and the well-being of the people of Dublin. So I want us to think today and in this series about what it means for CCC to be a city within a city. And I want to think today about decision-making with that in mind and how we can make decisions in uncertain times and how we can make decisions from faith and not fear. Nehemiah's heart had been captured by this idea of the city of God. But we'll see today, he had to make a lot of decisions once his heart had been caught. How do I go about rebuilding it? And we're going to see he had to face his fears. Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of insecurity, fear of conflict. Nehemiah will have to be willing to forfeit his livelihood, his comfort, his job, his status, his reputation, even his life for what? The city of God that God had put on his heart. Now, the pandemic has made us all reevaluate our lives afresh, hasn't it? What are our priorities? What's important to me? With everything so much stripped away, we suddenly go, oh, 
I never thought that was such a big deal. In fact, it isn't a big deal, or it is a bigger deal. We've, had to, we've done that, haven't we? All of us have done that. But now the restrictions are lifting, and we can sort of breathe and look to the future with slightly more optimism, and we can plan again, and we can make decisions again. How are we going to make those decisions? What patterns of thinking do we need to relearn or unlearn so we make good decisions at this time? So we're going to think today about decision-making uh, from a position of faith and not fear as we understand what it is to be part of the city of God where our true safety and joy lies. Not in the decisions we make, but in where we belong. Now, in Christ City Church, we normally, and I think we did it last year, we couldn't do it this year, have uh, run a, uh, a decision-making seminar. And in, in the decision-making seminar, some of you have been on it, there's typically, if I can use broad brushstrokes, two types of people. Let me call them procrastinators and rhinos. Okay? And I want everyone in a minute to vote whether you're a procrastinator or a rhino. A procrastinator forever puts off decisions, lacks decisiveness, often succumbs to cowardice, and can feel paralyzed when it comes to a decision. A rhino, they're impulsive, they're bullish, they're rash, and they often succumb, not to cowardice, but to impatience, and they can make foolish decisions as a result. So procrastinators get stuck in a rut and find it hard to move forward. Rhinos think too short-term and struggle to commit to one thing. Show of hands then. Are you a procrastinator or a rhino? I'm a rhino, just a self-vulnerability thing here, okay? Okay, I've got it out there. So I'm voting second. Don't feel judged if you're the first. Procrastinators, hands up. Okay, rhinos, hands up. Those of you that have perfectly got decision-making, hands up. No, no one, okay. Very good. Why do we procrastinate? Why are we rhinos? Because we fear. That's why. We fear a mistake. We fear regret. We fear we'll get it wrong. We fear losing out, FOMO, of limiting our options. We fear commitment. We fear vulnerability and being known. Whatever it is, fear can make us very rash and impatient like a rhino, or can make us very indecisive and paralyzed like a procrastinator. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to see a man who faced his fears, but he didn't rush, nor did he procrastinate. He made decisions for the glory of God and the good of others. Jesus would later say, wouldn't he, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or nearer the end, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and let everything else come second. Nehemiah does that. So let's have a look at the passage in three parts and think about decision-making. Approaching the king, inspecting Jerusalem, facing opposition. Approaching the king. Uh, chapter 2 starts in the month of Nisan of the 20th year. And if you remember from last week, chapter 1 started uh, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Now, you won't understand that uh, dating system, but it's the ancient Jewish dating system, and it roughly translates to December 446 BC and April 445 BC. So, in other words, when Nehemiah heard the news in the month of Kislev of the 20th year, what did he do for four months? He heard about the disgrace of the people of God. He heard about the disrepair of the city walls. What did he do? He prayed. And he weeps and he mourns. That was chapter one. In other words, he didn't rush. A lot of emotion was to come to Nehemiah. God's city's in ruins. What did he do? Panic? No. Pray. Don't rush. Don't be impulsive. Seek God in prayer. Discover God's heart, which is what he did and God's purposes and will. 
And in prayer, it's not in the text, but we kind of get it from what he says, he must have gone through his fears. The fears lurking in his heart. He says, if I'm going to choose the risk of Jerusalem over the comforts of Persia, what's it going to cost me? He must have thought of that. My secure job as one of the chief security guards to Artaxerxes. My financial rewards and my future in this job. It's a good job, you know. My familiarity and the friend. I've, I've got many friends here. And his fear of how the most powerful man in the world at the time was going to respond when he said, would you reposition me from being your number one security guard to go into a little province called Judah? He didn't know how the king would respond. Because at the end of the four months of prayer, why I think he must have grappled with his fears, is he only asked one prayer request. I shared this last week. At the end of chapter one, he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king, of this man, the king. Nehemiah had a plan. After four months, he'd figured out his plan in prayer. I'd enter the king's presence with a sad face. He'd never done that before because he was a very good employee. But now he's going to get the king's attention by having a sad face. But that could incur the king's wrath. It could mean he loses his job for being a bad cupbearer. It could be excluded from some of the privileges. It could, depending on how irrational Persian kings sometimes were. You've heard some stories, I'm sure. He could cost him his life. But it was a calculated risk. And it was a calculated risk because he'd wrestled in prayer over the fear in his heart for four months. He'd won a battle in the secret place that none of us saw. He'd been with God. And he thought it through and was willing to risk his own livelihood for the city of God. He had felt God's reassurance of his protection and provision. In other words, in those four months, you can imagine God is testing Nehemiah's motivation. Who are you living for? Really, Nehemiah? You, you, you want to live for my city? Really? And he was testing Nehemiah's reliance. Are you really going to rely on me as you take a risk here? And that's what happens to us all. You come to a decision in your life. What happens? Your motivation and your reliance on the Lord is revealed. It's happened in all the big decisions I've had to make. Why am I doing this? My motivation, my reliance on the Lord. Am I willing to take a risk for him? And by the way, don't be threatened by that. See that as a wonderful opportunity for growth in your relationship with God and encounter with God. Don't go, I just wish the decision was over because this is causing such a... No, no, the decision-making process is where you meet with God and grow. Don't be threatened. See it as an opportunity. I imagine Nehemiah had two, opportun- two, two, two big decisions, so two frameworks he could think about when it came to motivation. Two decision-making frameworks. The first one was based on comfort and opportunity. What's best for me? What would make my life more comfortable? What would lead to a greater chance of promotion and greater remuneration in my job? You know, career advancement, that was option one for him, wasn't it? Not all bad. Option two was covenant and calling. That was last week, wasn't it? God... He, he, was, he, he realized his solidarity with God's people. I can't make this decision without thinking about the body. But also calling. What do I mean by calling? Obedience to God in all areas of life. Finances, vocation, relationships, time. In other words, putting God first is your calling in life. There's no other calling. There's no other calling. Putting God first is your calling. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's your calling. Don't need another one. You've got one. 
So you wrestle with that one, don't you, when you make your decision. So when you think about how to make decisions, or when you think back about decisions, there's two competing frameworks. They're not always competing, because number one isn't necessarily all bad. But it's worth thinking it through. Am I making this decision out of personal comfort and opportunity, or out of covenant and calling, solidarity to God's people and commitment to Christ? Well, through those four months of prayer, God worked on Nehemiah's heart to refine his motivation and teach him reliance as he faced his fear. And he approaches, verse 2, the king with a sad face. How's the king going to react? The king notices. And he he realizes and he beckons Nehemiah in. Uh, But before that, he says this, listen. I was very much afraid, verse 2. Nehemiah wasn't macho. He didn't pretend he didn't have fears. He says, I was very much afraid based on the decision I was having to make. He's not trying to feel impressive. I've got to this position of faith where I don't have fear. No, no, he knew his fears and was acting in faith. He says in verse 3 to the king, the city where my ancestors were buried lies ruined and the gates have been destroyed. And you can imagine, he's like, now I've gone in a sad face. I've told why my face is sad. What's the king going to do? Am I losing my job? Is it going to get worse than that? But God had been working behind the scenes, not just in Nehemiah's heart, but in his circumstances and the heart of the king. And so his heart is beating. And the king says that he can sort of talk more. But you see in verse 4 and 5, Nehemiah does something fascinating. He says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. In other words, Nehemiah had a theology that had two thrones. The throne of heaven and the throne on earth. He prays to the God of heaven and he answers the king. He prays to the one who's on the throne of the universe, but he answers the one on the throne on the earth. The most powerful man in the universe is not the one I'm speaking to, it's the one I'm praying to. Amazing. Nehemiah is scared out of his wits, but he knows he can do it because he knows who's really in charge as he goes into that meeting. Not the king on the, th- on the earthly throne, the king on the heavenly throne. And the rest of the section shows, Mimi read the passage, how the king on the throne in heaven enables everything to go forward. Because the king Xerxes says to him, Artaxerxes says to him, well, what do you need for this? And Nehemiah must be like, oh, my life, I've been given the opportunity. I can do this. Panic, panic, panic. No, he doesn't panic. Did you see? He goes, I need this much timber. I need a letter because there's going to be political persecution. He says, I'm going to need about this much time. Nehemiah had been planning that whole time. He knew exactly what he needed. And if he was to give him, if the king on the earthly throne was to give him the opportunity, he knew what he was going to say in other words, those four months in prayer, Nehemiah was also planning. As Nehemiah prayed, he got in touch with God's heart and will. He overcame his fears. He started to count his life as nothing. As Nehemiah prayed, he was strengthened and mobilized for what it would take. But as Nehemiah prayed and as his heart started to change, his mind went into action. He started planning the wood, the letters, the length of time. That's all important. John White, in a lovely book on Nehemiah on on leadership principles, says the organization took place in the presence of God. Nehemiah illustrates a principle in godly planning, the principle of anticipating difficulties and bringing them into God's presence. Prayer 
is where the planning starts. So decision-making for you and me. Some of us go, let go and let God. There's a king on the throne of the universe. I don't need to do anything. Let me just pray and see what he does. And we become very passive and lazy. We despise the use of the brain and common sense and planning that God doesn't want us to despise. Other of us are the opposite. We forget the king of the throne of the universe and we only think about the political powers of operation in our, operating in our world and we don't let God in and we don't sit and pray and take retreat days. We're a frenzy of activity and planning. We get agitated and anxious. We're restless. We haven't quieted our hearts in the presence of the king of the throne in heaven. So we're ill-equipped to make decisions. Not Nehemiah. He planned while he prayed. He prayed while he planned. And he didn't make a final decision till all the planning and praying was over. He wasn't rash or impulsive. It took four months. He didn't procrastinate and get paralyzed in fear. He knew he needed to summon some courage. It was time to go and see the king. See, you may have picked it up, but there's a theological principle you have to square to make good decisions. And it's this that there's a throne in heaven and that God is ultimately in control and rules over all of your decisions. That's why Nehemiah prays in chapter 1 and has a quick prayer here. He knows that ultimately God is going to take care of his life regardless of, you know, he's the one seeing that everything in history goes according to a plan. And he knows he's responsible to act. And his decisions do matter. And he has to summon courage to act. There is a man on the throne on the earth who, politically speaking, can move me from Persia to Jerusalem. And I need to go and talk to him about that opportunity. On the one hand, God is completely in control and his plan will come about. On the other hand, I'm responsible and held responsible and I have to make decisions. It's a paradox we see throughout the scriptures, the freedom of God and the freedom of man. Both are true. Most famously, the story of Joseph when the brothers sell him into slavery and in the end he becomes second in command in Egypt and, and he saves many people's lives, including those brothers that try to kill him. And the famous verse, Exodus, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God's freedom, human freedom. As I said, we typically veer to one side. Some of us think we're the only ones in control. Panic, panic, panic. Stress, stress, stress. Quick, quick. It's me. It's all on me. Some of us think, ah, it's only God. Like, he'll do whatever he needs to do. I'll just sort of passive, passive, passive. Shrug, shrug, shrug. Procrastinate, procrastinate, procrastinate. If you don't hold the tension, you will not have the balance and poise of Nehemiah in your decision making. If God is not in control, it's all on your shoulders. That's a weight that makes decision making exhausting. But if it's not up to you to act, you never get to that moment of summer's courage to act. And you get self-pity and you become the victim and all the rest. Do you want to know how you get the peace and poise of Nehemiah? How you overcome anxiety and decisions without becoming passive? You hold on to the two truths. There's a king on the throne of the universe and his plan will come about and you will be okay in that plan. And you're responsible and you must act. And there's moments where you've got to summon up courage and face your fear. Which theological framework, part of the theological framework or paradox, have you lost? Do you leave it all to God's freedom? 
Would you put it all, leave it all to your freedom? You've got to hold the two together. So let's carry on. He's approached the king, faced those fears, and now he goes and inspects the city walls. And he takes him three days. And at the start of the journey, he says this, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And during the night search, he goes to every gate, he goes to every little bit of the wall, he sees all the disrepair, uh, and, he, and he monitors it. And so again, we see another helpful prison, uh, principle in decision-making. Waiting on God in prayer does not mean you, go and, you don't go and investigate the situation thoroughly yourself. For example, where should I live in Dublin? Well, what kind of area is it? What are the transport options? What other members of the church live near that place? What will it cost? Can I afford that cost? Would that cost put me at a burden? Will I have to change my expectations of the type of house and area I might have to live in? What are the schools? You go and do the research. You don't just go, let go and let God. All those are important questions. The Holy Spirit can and often does guide us supernaturally, but we are irresponsible if we deliberately don't find out ourselves. To walk by faith means knowing the problems and obstacles ahead and then looking to God for solutions, not being blind to the obstacles and problems ahead. So writing a pros and cons list when making a decision is a very good idea. Why? Firstly, because you'll become aware of your motivation and fears as you do that. And secondly, because you can face the facts and look at the challenges and seek God in prayer for the best way ahead. Now, if Nehemiah starts, as we saw here in verse 12, by keeping his motivation and his decision about what he was doing a secret in this nighttime inspection of Jerusalem, he does at the end of the inspection share with others. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Like they could actually see it now. They've been there. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Now, there's so many lessons in leadership here which uh, we, we haven't got time for, but what about the lesson of decision-making? He involved others. I mean, you read the book of Proverbs for decision-making. It says you're a fool if you don't involve other people, particularly older people, in making decisions. You're a fool, it says. Nehemiah brings along sharers. He shares his vision. He's not sure how they're going to respond, but he wants to make sure that he's not going to be going alone in his decision-making. He wants affirmation and support and help. And so in our decision-making, we mustn't do it in isolation. There's no such thing as a lone wolf in God's kingdom. Involve people you trust. Involve people that will ask good questions. Involve people who will seek your good as you as a person, but in seeking your good, they will ask questions about your motivation and about your fears and whether you're being rash and impulsive or whether you're being procrastinating and full of uh, cowardice. Involve friends and family. Involve the church family. Involve your city group. Don't go it alone. Involve others. It's a key part of maturing as a Christian. Some people keep making decisions in life and never involve the church family. And you're thinking, this is just everywhere in the scriptures. Are you willing to hear what other people have to say when it might go against what your first instinct of the decision should be? It's not that you don't then end up making that decision. It's just that you uh, allow people to feed in advice. Involve others. In Nehemiah's case, what happened? 
It says, they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. It's like, hooray, let's go. Not so quick. There's one more part of the story. Opposition. Three men, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, will be a thorn in his side, trying to intimidate, humiliate, undermine, and physically stop Nehemiah's work. These three men will crop up again and again in the story. And so we must know in any decision that when we're seeking God's kingdom first, when we're responding in faith and from freedom of heart, as Nehemiah was, you mustn't be naive that there's going to be a counterattack from the evil one who wants to make us scared, who wants to make us doubt, who wants to make us rely on ourselves, who wants to make us give up. These three men mocked and ridiculed the early rebuilding project. They tried a smear campaign. You're obeying against the king. They tried to spread lies. You know, when you make a decision with God's glory in mind, first and foremost, even friends and family, particularly those that don't know Christ, may give you good advice that is based on worldly principles, and you have to be willing to go, maybe that's not the best advice for my case. They have your best interests at heart, but maybe the advice isn't the best, interest, uh, the, the best advice for you as a Christian. We must be ready and expect a counterpunch to come. Now, what does Nehemiah, we're going to look at opposition to the rebuilding as we go through the series. But what does Nehemiah do? Verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it, because his enemies weren't Jews. Nehemiah responds confidently. Why? Because he knows where he belongs. His historic rights to the city of Jerusalem as a Jew. In other words, he knows his covenant, with the covenant, what it is to be part of the covenant people, and he knows his calling. He belongs to God, the people of God, and the city of God. And so do we. When Satan tempts us to despair, when our sinful nature tempts us to comfort, know where you belong in the city of God. It's secure. Nothing can steal your joy and nothing can ultimately threaten you. You have a claim to it. How do you have a claim to it? Nehemiah went before the king of Persia because he wanted to go into Jerusalem to build the city of God. 500 years later, another man would go before the king before the throne of heaven for the city of God. Nehemiah risked his life. This one would die. And by his blood, you and I would have a claim to the city of God. He'd be blotted out so you can be written in. He'd be cast aside so you can walk into the city freely by faith. And afterwards, he was raised to life and he was seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory. And the Apostle Paul tells us that we too, through faith, are seated with Christ. Where? In the heavenly city the heavenly realms. And Paul would say to the Philippian church, our citizenship is where? In heaven, in that city of eternal joy and security. What God intended for evil, 
killing of Jesus ended up being the saving of many lives and the ultimate cornerstone in the new city which we can all belong to and become bricks in living stones by faith. To write to, to Christians struggling with persecution and suffering, the Hebrews writer says about Abraham, he was looking forward to what? A city with foundations whose architecture and builder is God. So when fears come to your heart, remind yourself of where you belong and how safe you are and Satan cannot snatch you from that city ever because you're in Christ. When the devil tempts you to despair, remind him that he has no claim on the city of God and you belong to that city and he cannot touch you. It's yours, it's not his. You're safe, you're secure, you're loved, you're promised eternal joy. When you're tempted to put comfort and opportunity over covenant and calling, remember where your true joy is and your claim to the city of God through the blood of Jesus. In other words, friends, it's the gospel that we belong to another city through faith in Christ and his sacrifice that means we can make decisions based on faith and not fear. It's the gospel that helps our hearts align with God's heart. It's the gospel that gives us courage. It's the gospel that makes us neither rational, impatient, nor procrastinate and get stuck. It's the gospel that gives us patience, poise, and courage that Nehemiah had. So we, God's people, as we seek to rebuild and be an alternate city, an alternate community within the city of Dublin, can make good decisions for God's glory and the people's good in this city for the good of the gospel. So as Jesus said, let's seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything will be added on. Father, we uh, just take a moment to, I guess, do what Nehemiah did. Examine our motivation and examine our dependence on you for all things. Lord, I, I look at that, uh, that story and I realize how often I, I'm not willing to even admit my fears, let alone come to you and allow you to heal me. And I realize, Lord, when I look back at my decisions, how often it's really motivated by self-interest and comfort and opportunity, not covenant and calling in your glory. So Lord, I just say, and on behalf of those, my brothers and sisters who I'm sure can resonate, we just say sorry that so often we do succumb to fear and we don't put you first. We thank you that as we've wonderfully sung and Louise has prayed, we've heard so much of your grace today and your forgiveness for us. And we thank you, Jesus, that by faith we belong to an eternal city. We have claim to it. And we are secure. And I pray that would give us confidence when we have to face our fears and have to make decisions to know that you are the one on the throne, that you are in charge. Our decisions aren't going to, you know, you have got our best interests in heart. It doesn't all rest on our shoulders. And then we'd have courage to make good decisions. So I pray a blessing on all of us, Lord, as we go from today into this week and into the months and years ahead, that you teach us these great principles of decision-making. In Jesus' name, amen.